Assalamu alaikum and welcome to another episode of Mahali Aati Mukalme. Today we have the pleasure of being joined with a very, very special guest, um, Mr. Ian Fry. Mr. Ian Fry is the current serving special rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights in the context of climate change. He's an international environmental law and policy expert, and his uh, focus has primarily um, focused on mitigation policies and loss and damage associated with the Paris Agreement, the Kyoto Protocol, and related instruments. Mr. Fry has worked for the Tuvalu government for over 21 years and was appointed as their ambassador for climate change from 2015 to 2019. Um, Mr. Fry has also represented the Tuvalu government at numerous international fora, including the World Summit on Sustainable Development, the Commission for Sustainable Development, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, the Kyoto Protocol, the Convention on Biodiversity, um, the United Nations General Assembly, and the United Nations Small Island Developing States Conferences. Um, Mr. Fry also teaches part-time at the Fenner School of Environment and Society at the Australian National University. He specializes in environment, international environmental policy and in, in environmental law. Um, so, Mr. Fry, thank you so much for being with us today. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so, what we want to talk about today is um, this relationship between human rights and climate change, and of course, as the first special rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights in the context of climate change. Um, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit about um, how exactly this interaction between human rights and climate change works, and what specific human rights are we talking about? Well, the, the climate change has an enormous effect on, on human rights. So uh, across the world, people are suffering from climate change, and therefore they're suffering, uh, you know, the loss of, uh, for some people, their loss of life, uh, the right to water, the right to sanitation, to housing, to health, are all connected to climate change impacts. So the, uh, there's quite a broad spectrum of human rights violations that are occurring as a consequence of climate change. And um, so there's this discussion about mitigation being the, um, the first area of climate change we should look at because until we tackle mitigation, losses and damages will continue to increase and adaptation will get harder and harder. So within the mitigation uh, field, uh, how exactly do, uh, do reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and carbon removal, how do those affect the human rights of individuals? Well, there, there are two sides to that, I guess. <clears throat> the more you know, action is taken to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, mm -hmm. then the less we're going to have uh, human rights violations, so, you know, the action. So, you know, there's, there's certainly not enough action to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, and so that's part of uh, what I'm looking at, is to how to accelerate action on climate change. But the other side of the coin is that there are certain mitigation actions that also have human rights implications. <clears throat> so, for instance, uh, you know, I, I met with the Indigenous peoples uh, at the last climate change COP, and that and they told me of various, you know, climate change mitigation actions that are affecting their human rights. Um, <clears throat> hydroelectric dams is one of them. So uh, I, I met with people from the Amazon Basin and uh, the development of hydroelectric dams as a mitigation technology is affecting their, their human rights because it's affecting their rights to water, uh, it's displacing them from their land as the land gets inundated. 
so that, you know, and that that's a common story around the world with hydro dams, is that there, there are uh, distinct human rights implications for those. Uh, I met with the Sami people in, in the in the Arctic region and their traditional herders of reindeer, and they're concerned about the development and and uh, location of wind turbines. So the, you know the Swedish government, for instance, is locating uh, wind turbines on their land, on the Sami land, and and that's affecting the the, the reindeer herds. Uh, and and you know the roads that go into those areas is affecting uh, you know reducing their land and so therefore uh, that's having an impact on, on them. So you know they're just a couple of these sort of mitigation technologies. And of course, what the other one is around deforestation and, and reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation, which is a program that's been developed under the Climate Convention. And there are different views about that, you know, whether, whether that's actually reducing emissions, um, but also is, is it uh, attributing a value to trees, uh, a carbon value to trees, which is taking away the rights of indigenous peoples. And so there are, you know, quite strong views around uh, the whole issue of reducing emissions from deforestation. What are the human rights implications of those? Mm -hmm. So in this area, it's not just about um, noting the relationship between human rights and climate change, it's about balancing those, because often human rights will be in, um, in contention with each other, and certain actions will have externalities on those human rights. Yes, that's right. So, and it's also, you know, as, as we're moving towards uh, electronic vehicles and, and batteries, the mining of lithium is another one where there are there are significant human rights violations in the mining industry. So that's another one. You know, we, we have to be mindful of these things. In the region where I come from, in the Pacific, uh, you know, there's proposals for deep seabed mining uh, to extract uh, uh, minerals for for this sort of whole whole electronic business. Uh, and you know, there 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 will be if it. If it's allowed, have significant human rights implications because of the uh, churning up of the, 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 the bottom, destruction of biodiversity is going to have you know a serious human rights implications with that. Mm -hmm. And I'd, I'd like to go now to um, loss and damage, and particularly the non-economic uh, losses and damage, which. Um, at least academics have spoken about as this area that's often ignored because you can't put a monetary value or try to use this monetary system to understand the loss of culture, the loss of social cohesion, the anxiety that results from um, the loss and damage from slow onset events or uh, sudden events. Um, so how are we at, um, at measuring that and, and how are we going about including non-economic loss and damage in our understanding of the, the losses that are taking place today? Well, this is a real challenge to, to you know, to quantify it and, and to have, you know, active measures to deal with it. You know, if, for instance, an example, uh, going back to the Pacific, you know, uh, Tuvalu is is losing grave sites as a consequence of sea level rise and storm surges. So that's a that's a it's a clear non-economic loss as a consequence of climate change. And how how do you put a value on losing a relative, you know, from from a grave? And the, these are some of the 
the issues that, that are challenging and, and how do you compensate somebody for that loss? You know, there's no real economic compensation that can be provided, but we, we have to be mindful of those losses. And I guess once we, we see those losses, then, then it might accelerate action to reduce you know, the impacts in, in the first place. But it's, it's very hard to, to quantify these non-economic losses or provide some sort of compensation for those. So how is this issue being dealt with at climate uh, negotiations? It's a real challenge. You know, the, the uh, Warsaw International Mechanism on Loss of Damage has, has, has a particular work program looking at these non-economic losses. But there, there isn't a lot coming out of that discussion at the moment. Uh, it's certainly, uh, you know, it, people are aware of these non-economic losses, and, um, but, uh, you know, what, what do you do about them is the real challenge. And uh, I think it's also important here that um, our traditional, um, I guess, the, the elite that are involved in negotiations or policy decisions within countries, um, perhaps they also don't have the best understanding of non-economic losses and damages where indigenous communities and uh, those most impacted by climate change are the ones who can better articulate what these are. So are we successful in in getting these voices to international forums, are we are we successful in giving them a platform that is actually meaningful without being just symbolic? Well, that, again, that's the real challenge. That, you know, the climate convention has a local communities and indigenous peoples platform, yeah. which provides an opportunity for local communities and indigenous peoples to present their views. But I I attended one of those meetings last year, and I, I just wasn't convinced that it was a you know a useful platform for bringing forward the concerns, particularly indigenous peoples and their their loss of, of cultural knowledge as a consequence of climate change and and what what the international community should be doing about that. So there, there is still a big gap between you know uh, particularly indigenous peoples and and their knowledge and and getting the international community to be aware of that. And, and to take action on that. I mean, because there are a lot of sensitivities around the, the whole issue of Indigenous peoples. Like, I, I was in Bangladesh last year on a country visit, and the Bangladesh government doesn't recognise Indigenous peoples. They, they call them small ethnic minorities. And, and so there, there's not even the recognition of Indigenous peoples, or, you know, and therefore there's no acceptance of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which is a, is a critical area. And so there are still challenges around that issue as well and in getting adequate recognition of Indigenous Peoples. And of course, other countries are concerned about uh, sovereignty issues, you know, but, you know, claims of Indigenous Peoples. And where I come from in Australia, there are, you know, a serious lack of recognition of Indigenous Peoples' rights. And something that I noticed in Pakistan is at least um, we're now coming to realize that indigenous knowledge on the environment is valuable and that community-based solutions um, that prioritize the community that is being affected are the ones that are most successful, especially in disaster situations um, with early warning uh, systems. So we're slowly getting to that um, recognition of their, their, their importance and their need of, uh, to, to inform us um, on how we need to go about this. 
but still there's that implementation gap where uh, we're not getting their voices heard on a large platform um, and the, the hurdles that they have to go over to get their views across, share their knowledge, um, it's, it's often, I, I, I would say, discouraging um, to, to them. Uh, so that's that's one of the area that I think um, we will see in the coming um, in the coming years, and I'm hoping that we'll get some meaningful progress on it. Yes, and that I mean that's an ongoing debate, and it, and it, it's, it came up in the biodiversity convention with with the you know regimes for access and benefit sharing, and that, there was a lot of pushback from indigenous peoples because you know we we know that there are pharmaceutical companies sending in anthropologists to study traditional medicines. They extract the active constituents of those medicines and then patent them and then make lots of money. And the, and the Indigenous people's knowledge uh, is not recognised, you know, commercially or, you know, by all the money doesn't flow back to the Indigenous peoples. Uh, and so this access and benefit sharing scheme is supposed to bring back that, that finances. But it's also an issue of you know, do Indigenous peoples want their knowledge to be shared, you know, as, as in the public domain? So that, that's another issue as well. And another great reason to have them on the table um, to, to hear what they want. Absolutely. And, um, how involved they'd like to be in, um, in the process. Yes. So I'd like to pivot a little now to um, climate litigation. Pakistan is a, a good example of where rights-based litigation has really flourished um, and uh, with the Asmin Nakari case um, and then a lot of ongoing petitions in the courts. Um, so I'd like to ask you whether uh, you've noticed this is an effective strategy in the global south, this use of uh, human rights within environmental climate change litigation. Um, have you seen that in a lot of other states and is it successful? Well, you know, to be honest, I think Pakistan is leading the field in this area. You know, that there isn't that connection between human rights and, and climate change issues. And in fact, there is, in some areas, there's pushback on this issue. Uh, and certainly at the last climate change COP, there was, you know, there were negotiations to bring on board human rights language in some of the work programs, and there was pushback particularly from some African countries on this issue, so there's a real sensitivity around human rights issues. Uh, um, and I, I think really Pakistan is doing an amazing job of, job in leading the field and bringing forward rights around rights to water and things like that that, that are well ahead of uh, a lot of other countries in that area. And so we've spoken about states, we've spoken about uh, governments who implement these policies, about the communities, but now I'd like to push to a and a stakeholder that's often forgotten, which I'm sure they would, they're happy about being <laughs> sidelined, it's corporations. So we, we recognize that corporations and their business activities have a huge impact on communities and the environment, and yet, um, they're not regulated under international environmental law the same way that states are. Um, so I, I'd like to talk to you about how exactly we could go about um, regulating them and ensuring that they don't have free reign to um, damage what is in common good for uh, for everybody. 
Um, and in particular, I want to hear a little bit about whether maybe the UNGBs on business and human rights uh, would be the right avenue or whether there's another um, regime under international law that could really cover this area of corporate accountability. So, the, yes, the UN, you know, uh, guiding principles on, on business and human rights is, a, is an important guide, but it's only soft law. Yeah. And, 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 you know, there, there's certainly business are aware of it, but I'm not sure there's a lot of adherence to those principles. I, I think we're seeing some useful uh, work uh, in the EU on you know, environmental and social governance measures, and they're bringing in various uh, you know, directives around that. And the US uh, is also you know, bringing in directives uh, and laws around environmental and social governance measures. So we're, we're slightly, slowly seeing sort of inroads into this corporate accountability area. And, uh, and you know, the, uh, I'm particularly interested in, in disclosure mechanisms. So we have a task force on, on disclosure, which is, again, uh, you know, creative guidelines on disclosure, which are, again, soft law. And, uh, you know, I, uh, this is one of the issues I'm looking at as special rapporteur is, whether we do need to bring some of these soft law agreements into becoming hard law to make corporations accountable. And as far as <clears throat> climate change and human rights are concerned, you know, we, we have to know where these financial institutions are investing their money, in, in particularly in fossil fuels, you know, and, and uh, they should be declaring so that the public can understand that their pension funds or insurance money or, or, you know, in these corporations where they're spending their money and are they underwriting climate change by doing that? And, and so, you know, we need stronger uh, disclosure mechanisms to, to ensure that these financial institutions, the banks, etc., have to disclose where they're investing their money. Uh, and, you know, the, the order of magnitude of investment is enormous. And you know the oil companies are making enormous amounts of money, and and they are able to through that buy influence, you know, and, and certainly uh, uh, you know Forbes magazine reported on the sort of House Committee on Energy that was held in the United States, and and uh, you know the, the the oil companies appeared before that that House Committee to account for themselves, but ten out of the nineteen members of the House Committee who who are in Congress are sponsored by oil companies. So, you know, there's a, a, a vicious cycle of, uh, uh, of protection of these industries, and we, we have to draw out that, uh, you know, protection mechanisms and, and, you know, create stronger laws to, to make business accountable. Mm -hmm. And businesses have this really incredible skill of greenwashing yes. whatever they're doing. So even their presence at COP um, and their funding of COP, uh, sometimes they, they can put a haze in front of your eyes and you don't realize these are actually the biggest emitters, um, especially, well, for biggest sources of plastic pollution, the Coca-Cola last year. And then this year with um, in the UAE, we're likely to see involvement by oil companies, which is Counterintuitive, I think. To the Absolutely, aims. yes, and, and and this this is the real problem we have is that that we're we're seeing these corporations having so much influence over, over you know decision making, and we ha we have to find ways of dealing with that and, and, and try and make them more accountable. 
And is this system on uh, the disclosure of investments, is that, um, has that kind of developed as a result of the Aarhus Convention with the right to access information? Can, can you kind of extract those principles and apply that in this case? I, I'm not sure whether it was, you know, because it's primarily European, and I, I, I think uh, that has certainly helped drive Europe's move for the disclosure. Uh, and I think that's quite important. Uh, I think that one of the interesting areas is the Iquazu Agreement on you know, right to know and knowledge and things like that. And I, I think we'll start to see that taking effect. I, I think uh, in the US, I'm not sure what's been behind it. You know, I, I think you know, President Biden's wanted to, you know, to, has seen the influence of, of, of these companies on, on vote buying, I guess, in some ways. And so uh, that's why he's brought in some of these measures, and I, I think they're quite critical. Uh, you know, we have to sort of link this to, you know, the environmental and social governance. So we have to see how corporations, what their human rights record is as well. And of course, there are clearly a lot of sensitivities in developing countries around that sort of reporting measures, you know, for for reporting on human rights records for business uh, is, is a, a challenging area, but I, I you know, it, it's critical that we, we do that. You know, we, we know that there's a lot of child labor. We know that there is, you know, slave labor in industries. We only have to look at the, you know, textile industries in this part of the world to know that, you know, there, there's a, a lot of human rights abuses within those industries. And so, I mean, it's a sensitive issue. I mean, whether these, uh, you know, corporations or governments are willing to regulate those, uh, knowing how they bring in money to the country. Yeah. Um, I'd now like to get a little bit of advice for the state of Pakistan. Um, you've negotiated on behalf of Dubu for many years, you've worked for the Dubu government for 21 years, you've been an ambassador for climate change and environment there. Um, and Dubu has been very successful on the international stage, um, despite its, um, it, despite being such a small um, island state, in, in really highlighting the impacts of climate change that it's experiencing and bringing some really important issues to the table. So I'd like to hear, given the unique situation that Pakistan finds itself in with the um, increased frequency and intensity of uh, floods and um, of our heat waves as well, um, how can how can other states learn from uh, Dubu's experience? I'm sure there were a lot of successes, failures, and a lot of hard work that went into that. So, so what are the areas that can be worked on? What are the best practices we should look out for? Well, one thing I you know say that uh, governments shouldn't be afraid to involve non-government organisations on their delegations, and if you if you see the really successful uh, delegations, a lot of them have non-government representatives on them. So, uh, you know, we, we have some uh, large, well, for, for small island states and for least developed countries, because is a least developed country, we've had a lot of support from International Institute for Environment Development, which uh, uh, those people are on delegations. Um, uh, there's a, another organisation called Climate Analytics, which is a German-based organisation, but also has people located in developing countries, and they come on delegations. And one thing I say, you know, is that NGOs have a much 
better network of knowledge than governments do, you know, because governments sit up there, they're silos, they don't talk to other governments. And, and whereas NGOs have a much better uh, communication network and understand and get intelligence around different issues. And uh, that certainly helped uh, small island states for a number of years. We, we used to have uh, a foundation for international environmental law and development, a UK law firm, and we had lawyers from that NGO support the alliance of small island states, and that they were quite valuable. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, a lot of those lawyers have gone on. The chief negotiator now for the European Union was one of those lawyers who supported small island states. So, you know, organisations like your own, you know, uh, could play a very critical role in supporting the government. And because you've got those networks and uh, intelligence networks to understand what other countries are saying and things like that, and, and that's invaluable to, to be able to understand. And, you know, you can tell somebody who's a negotiator who's had a, an NGO background, uh, you know, because they've got that, uh, you know, a way to cut corners and not be too rigid in their thinking that, that you learn if you're a bureaucrat. <clears throat> and that, you know, from my own experience, you know, I came from an NGO background and that, and that taught me how to, how to cut corners, how to, how to com communicate with others to find intelligence and so forth. And that, that helped me a lot in, in climate change negotiations. Mm -hmm. And so you've, you've kind of answered my next question uh, with the silos um, in, in terms of which organizations or individuals or groups of stakeholders need to interact. But um, I want to talk a little bit about the, uh, the areas in which we work. Uh, so climate change is a super wicked problem. It can't be solved by international lawyers alone. It can't be solved by bureaucrats alone. Um, and it can't be solved by economists or even scientists. So, but, but often there isn't much conversation between these different fields, despite recognizing that climate change is an interdisciplinary issue and it's an issue for all of mankind that we have to address now. So how can we kind of promote that discourse between different disciplines to get that, um, so that we take the knowledge from each field and use that to tackle the issue that we face? Yeah, well, you just got to break down those barriers and, and have conferences and dialogues, uh, you know, to have that exchange of view so people can understand the different issues, you know, from my own experience in working in Pacific Island country, fisheries department are critical, you know, that climate change is affecting fisheries, so we, we have to have that discussion with the fisheries department, you know, and we, we you know, before every COP we used to have uh, a round table with all the departments and NGOs, you know, so we could get the sort of breadth of views around the issues that were coming up for the COP, and, and, and this is critical, and, and uh, you know, I, I do negotiation training and, and preparation for the COPs is critical. That you, you reach out to the NGOs, reach out to their knowledge networks, reach out to other government departments and get an exchange of views uh, so that you, you, you understand the issues that are, that are there. Of course, you can't do everything. And, and, and so each country has to decide what is the critical issues that they want to cover. We, you know, we just don't have the size of delegations to cover everything. And, and so, you know, the way the least developed countries worked 
we'd, we'd have preparatory meetings, we'd identify somebody to be the spokesperson on diff different thematic issues, we'd meet amongst ourselves and we you know, identify those people. But you, you have to have that sort of dialogue across different departments to, to make sure uh, that everybody's on board and everybody understands what's going on. And so we've talked about a lot of these different areas of human rights and climate change, um, but I'd, li I'd like to end on the note with getting what you're most excited for um, with COP, what area um, are you looking forward to seeing progress on, um, and uh, yeah, what, what do you hope out of this next COP? Well, to be honest, I don't have a lot of uh, you know, uh, hope for this COP. It, the problem is that we're, we're continuously having COPs located in, in uh, fossil fuel exporting countries. And there, there's a problem, institutional problem of why that's happening. Uh, and, uh, and we have to fix that. Uh, you know, to, to get countries that are the vulnerable countries hosting COPs uh, but, you know, COPs have become so big that you need the, the infrastructure, the tourism resorts or whatever to, have, you know, to be able to host people and so forth and do that. But, I mean, that's a challenge. I, I, I think, you know, we're heading towards this global stock tape, stock tape. And I, I think, you know, we, we're, uh, I think that will be a real eye-opener. If we, if we get the right sort of information it'll be a real shake-up to the world. And so the next COP will be part of that process. I think that's critical. I think the work on the loss and damage fund will be critical as well as part of it. But, you know, the trouble is we've got, you know, the, the, the president of the COP is, works for a major oil exporting company. Uh, it's, uh, it's a challenge to get meaningful outcomes when we have... Uh, you know, fossil fuel uh, interests so strongly embedded in the process. So I imagine this year as well, the negotiators will be working late into the night to, to make sure that we get more concrete language. Yes, it's 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 become a habit now. You know, I, I used to say, you know, this is every cop I went to. This is three weeks of torture. You know, I, we had the preparatory meetings of the. The regional groups, so we had least developed countries and small arms states. We go into negotiations, and then the last week, you know, the, at least the last few days, I, I don't get any sleep. You know, the Madrid COP, I slept for two hours at the conference center in the last night, and Paris, you know, I didn't go home to my hotel for the last couple of nights. You know, it, it, it you just you, know, you grab a little bit of sleep, and that's it. You know, and hope that there's food available there. Uh, uh, terrible hours of the night. So, yeah, it's a torturous process, you know, being involved. And th this is the other issue I, you know, uh, I try and teach in my negotiations training work is that you've got to be there for the long haul. You've got to have the stamina to, to be there at the, the critical moments. And, and, that, and uh, you know, for some countries, they don't do that. And that, that's part of it. You've got to be there, willing to stay up late, uh, right till the end. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been really excellent to get the opportunity to speak to you about this, and I'm sure our audience would really appreciate your insights, um, and it's given them quite a bit to think about. Uh, so thank you. And um, 
to our audience, please join us for our next episode of Mahalia.